In recent weeks, we have heard many things from Jesus. From chapter 13 of John's Gospel onwards, Jesus has been alone with his closest disciples. He has washed their feet. He has eaten a meal with them. And he has also taught them many things about the hatred they can expect from this world, about the Holy Spirit who will come to enlighten them and empower them for life in the face of this world's opposition. Jesus has promised his disciples they can experience joy and peace as they remain in him. We've heard all that teaching from Jesus, and most recently we have heard Jesus pray. As Jesus spoke to his Father, we have been able to see what is on his heart. And now, in our passage this morning, we're confronted with the reality that Jesus did not come to this earth to wash people's feet and share dinner with them. He did not come to this earth to teach or to pray. Yes, while he was on earth, he did all of those things, but the reason he came was to lay down his life as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that is why when Jesus suffered and died, he suffered and died alone. He was doing a work that only he could do. If you and I believe that Jesus was just a good man, just a good teacher, then we will have a very hard time explaining what comes next in John's Gospel. So let's turn to John chapter 18. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1086. In the larger print Bibles, 1680. We're going to read from verse 1 down to verse 27. John chapter 18. When he had finished praying... Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. 
The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood round a fire they had made to keep warm. So Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you speak to the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there, warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a cock began to crow. This is God's word. And it falls into two parts. Each part has a different location. One takes place in a garden, the other in a courtyard. And each part hinges on a repeated statement. The first is from Jesus, who says, I am he. The second statement is from Peter, who says, I am not. And all of this helps us appreciate why Jesus suffered and died alone. First, let's look at verses 1 to 11. I am he, faithfulness in the garden. When we first started looking at John's gospel, we noticed that his gospel is noticeably different from the gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. What I mean is that John is different in style. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are crammed full of incidents from Jesus' life. They're full of details. But John takes a different approach. 
John chooses to focus on a much smaller number of incidents, and he spends more time helping us see the meaning and the significance of those incidents. And what that means is when John does give us details, it's right for us to ask, why has he included this? Since John has chosen to tell us less than the other Gospels, why has he chosen to tell us this? And if we just look again at the first three verses of our passage, we can see the value of asking, why has John chosen to tell us this? Verse 1, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. What John is telling us here is that Jesus chose the garden. He chose it for his decisive act of obedience to his Father. He goes there with his disciples knowing Judas has arranged to betray him. And knowing Judas will hope to find him in this particular place. Because it's a place where Jesus has often met with his disciples. Commentators tell us this was probably a private walled garden. It was a beautiful, quiet spot with a wealthy owner who has allowed Jesus to make use of it. This garden was a place of refuge. A place where Jesus and his disciples could get away from the crowds in Jerusalem. And on this night... Jesus chooses to go there knowing Judas will look for him there. And knowing too, those who come with Judas will be able to capture him without any interference from the crowds. Jesus is in control of this situation. Jesus will not try to avoid the cross. He is walking purposefully towards the cross. That's one reason Jesus chose this garden on this decisive night, for this decisive act of obedience. But might there be another reason too? I think so. The opening words of John's gospel were, in the beginning. Those also happen to be the opening words of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. And Genesis chapter 1 goes on to describe God's work of creation, a work that was then very quickly marred and poisoned. That spoiling of God's creation took place in a beautiful garden, Eden, a garden provided by God as a place for the first man and woman to flourish as they lived in obedience to God. But in that garden refuge, the first man and woman carried out a decisive act of disobedience. That decisive act of disobedience led to death and brokenness. 
And not just for the man and woman. Death came to humanity. Brokenness came to all of creation. That was in the beginning. But the introduction to John's gospel told us Jesus came to bring a new beginning, a new creation. And here, Jesus chooses to bring about his new creation by a decisive act of obedience in another beautiful garden. If we read the beginning of John 18 with the whole of John's gospel in mind and the whole Bible in mind, then we begin to see the incredible significance of what's going on. Jesus, whose favorite way of referring to himself was the Son of Man, this night in this garden, Jesus, the Son of Man, is going to overcome the death and brokenness that came through the first man's disobedience in the first garden. Yes, Jesus' sacrificial work will be done on the cross in a few hours' time. But here in the garden, Jesus performs his decisive act of obedience, giving himself up to his enemies. You can see that in what comes next. Judas has come not only with Jewish officials, but also with Roman soldiers who are armed to the teeth. And the idea seems to be, we know that Jesus is no ordinary bloke. We know it might take some doing to subdue Jesus, get him to come quietly. So we'd better be prepared for a fight. What a laugh. If Jesus had not been willing to come, the entire Roman army couldn't have made him come. Look how Jesus takes control. In verse 4, instead of hiding back in a shady corner of the garden, Jesus comes to the entrance to meet his enemies. And he asks them who they want. Look at verse 5. Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have lost none of those you gave me. We've been reading from the beginning of John's gospel. We know that the words, I am he, are very significant. At the most basic level, of course, they identify Jesus as the man the soldiers are looking for. But the words, I am he, have much greater significance. They're words God uses in the Old Testament to announce himself as the one and only God. God over all. And seven times in John's gospel, Jesus uses those words of himself, declaring himself to be God over all. This is the seventh time. Here, faced with these armed men who've come to take him by force, Jesus declares himself to be Almighty God. 
who is going to willingly lay down his life. And that explains why when Jesus says, I am he, his enemies fall to the ground. The reality of this situation is being underlined for us. Jesus is Lord. He is the master of his enemies as much as of everything else. The powers of darkness and death have no hold on him. He submits to them willingly in order to break their power and set his people free. And that is foreshadowed here in verse 8, where Jesus says to his enemies, if you're looking for me, then let these men go. The Son of God surrenders himself to the powers of darkness so his people can go free. And what happens here in the garden will happen in an ultimate way when Jesus dies on the cross. Sin and death's power over humanity will be broken. Those who trust in Jesus are set free. And they rise with him to new life. If we know the New Testament, then some of us may be wondering at this point, what happened to Jesus' anguished prayer in the garden? That time when his soul was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That time when Jesus asked his father if there was another way. If the only way truly was for Jesus to drink the bitter cup of God's wrath against human sin. The other three Gospels record that prayer for us. Why doesn't John? I think the answer is that John is focusing on the outcome of Jesus' anguished prayer. John is showing us the resolve and the absolute commitment Jesus had when he rose to his feet after that prayer and then stepped forward to meet his enemies. You can see that in verses 10 and 11 where Peter is quite sure there is another way. Peter is not up for the idea of Jesus going quietly. Peter has come prepared with a sword. And he starts slashing around with it. Maybe hoping that Jesus will back him up and get on board with Peter's program. So they can smash their way out of the situation. But look how Jesus responds to Peter in verse 11. Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? This is Jesus on the other side of his anguished prayer. The question he asked his father has been settled. There is no other way. And knowing that, Jesus shows his absolute resolve to drink the cup the father has given him. He will do that on the cross. That's where he will drink the cup of God's wrath to its last dregs. So Peter can be saved from God's wrath. So you and I, can be saved from God's wrath. You and I were born lost and condemned. We were born cut off from God because of our own sin and the sinful nature we inherited from our first parents. 
We were born into a world broken by their unfaithfulness in a garden. And so we can thank God he came to heal and restore us through his own faithfulness in a garden. We've heard Jesus announce, I am he, the mighty and faithful one. But now in the second part of this passage, we hear Peter announce, I am not. Failure in the courtyard. Look at verse 12. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Again, it's laughable that the soldiers bind Jesus. It seems they're trying to convince themselves they have some power in this situation. But by now they must know they can only bind him because he allows them to. They bring him to Annas. Annas had been the high priest of Israel until the Roman governor deposed him, and he gave the position to his son-in-law, Caiaphas. But as far as the Jewish people are concerned, the high priesthood was a lifetime appointment. So in the eyes of the Jews, Annas is still the high priest. He's the big dog in Israel. So Jesus is taken to him first, so Annas can pass judgment. The courtyard of Annas' house represents the place of religious authority. And there, Annas, the religious big dog, will attempt to pass judgment on the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Verse 15 gives us another detail that's worth noticing. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple who was known to the high priest came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. The other disciple here is almost certainly John himself, the author of this gospel. Throughout this book, he never refers to himself by name, but he has been involved since chapter 1, giving us his eyewitness testimony, showing his knowledge of little details only an eyewitness would know. And here John is able to get into the high priest's courtyard because he has some acquaintance or there's some family connection with the high priest. And that might explain why, although all four gospel writers record that the high priest's servant got his ear cut off, only John gives us his name. Back in verse 10, Malchus. John knew these people. And he's able to use his influence to get Peter inside the courtyard as well. And it's worth asking ourselves what frame of mind Peter is in as he enters the courtyard. We're not told how he's feeling, but I think we can make a pretty educated guess. We know from all four Gospels that Peter was always opposed to the idea of Jesus laying down his life. 
Matthew and Mark both tell us when Jesus told his disciples he must suffer many things and be rejected and killed, Peter began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And in John chapter 13, Peter went as far as to tell Jesus, listen, I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. Presumably meaning, I will lay down my life fighting for your success here on earth. It seems Peter has a similar idea to the crowds back in chapter 6. They saw Jesus' power and they wanted to make him king by force. King of an earthly kingdom. It seems Peter has something similar in mind when he drew his sword in the garden and swung it at Malchus. But Jesus didn't thank Peter for that. He rebuked him in front of everyone. So I think it's reasonable to assume Peter is feeling a bit let down as he enters the high priest's courtyard. A bit disillusioned. Maybe a bit embarrassed and angry. Peter left everything to follow Jesus. Peter said he would lay down his life for Jesus. And when he drew his sword in the garden, Peter showed he had the courage to back up his commitment. He was willing to die fighting for Jesus. But Jesus refused to fight. Jesus went meekly without a fight. It's not hard to see when John lets Peter into the high priest's courtyard, Peter must be in a bit of a spin. Whether it's mainly anger and embarrassment Peter's feeling toward Jesus for not living up to his expectations, or whether fear has started to take over as Peter realizes now how vulnerable he is as the only one who did become violent in the garden. Of course, it was dark enough in the garden and it's dark enough here in the courtyard that Peter might not be recognized but he can't be sure about that. Whatever exactly is going on in Peter's head, his words are very clear in verse 17. I am not. Now he's responding to the servant girl's question. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? But as you and I hear Peter's words, I am not, we can't help but remember Jesus' words in the garden. I am he. Jesus is the Savior. Peter is not. Peter was going to do big things for Jesus. He was going to lay down his life for Jesus. But when it comes down to it, Peter denies he's even with Jesus. Verse 18 says he is standing with the servants and officials. Those same words were used of Judas back in verse 5. Judas the traitor was standing with them. And now Peter is standing with them too. Warming himself at their fire. Cozying up with Jesus' enemies. And as Peter stands with Jesus' enemies, Jesus stands alone. 
facing the injustice of this world. John gives us this in a split-screen format. We're supposed to see the contrast here between what is going on with Peter and not far away, somewhere in the same courtyard or building, what is going on with Jesus. In verse 19, the high priest is referring to Annas. As we saw earlier, he was still regarded by the Jews as the true high priest. And here, as the religious authority, Annas is looking to pass judgment on Jesus. Verse 19 says, he questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. So Annas is going after this like there's something that needs to be cleared up, something that needs to be gotten to the bottom of, something that needs to be clarified. But the fact is, Annas and his mates have had it in for Jesus since chapter 5, when Jesus called God his own father, making himself equal with God. In chapter 11, at the advice of Caiaphas, the Jewish leaders began plotting to take Jesus' life. So it is a farce for Annas to act here like he's trying to get to the bottom of things. Like he thinks Jesus has some sinister, hidden message that needs to be uncovered so justice can be done for the good of the people. You know, the religious authorities have already decided to have Jesus killed because of the message he proclaimed openly in Israel. There's nothing for this trial to find out. And so Jesus won't play along with it. He says to Annas in verse 20, I have spoken openly to the world. If you don't know what I've been teaching these last few years, ask those who listen to me. Quit acting like there's some secret you have to wheedle out of me. And for that fair and truthful answer, Jesus gets a slap across the face. Just a little foretaste of the unjust suffering that is ahead of Jesus. Verse 24 tells us, Annas then sends Jesus on to Caiaphas so the injustice can continue. Because Caiaphas is currently the official high priest, as far as the Romans are concerned, he is the one who will have to bring the legal accusation to the Roman governor Pilate. And at this point, the focus shifts back to Peter who is still standing, warming himself with Jesus' enemies. Again, Peter is asked if he's one of Jesus' disciples. Again, he denies it. I am not. And on Peter's third denial, a cock begins to crow. That's what Jesus said would happen. Back when Peter was so sure of himself, Back when Peter was making big promises about what he would do for Jesus. Back then, Jesus said, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. And the point here is not that Peter is an especially bad man. 
It's not that Peter is unique in his unfaithfulness. The point here is the contrast between Jesus, I am he, and Peter's, I am not. The words have far greater significance than Peter intended when he said them. He meant the words as a denial of his allegiance to Jesus. But when we line those words up against Jesus' own words, they are truer than Peter realized. Jesus is the strong one. Jesus is the I am of the Old Testament. And Peter most definitely is not. In many ways, Peter is the best of men. But Peter is not able to do what Jesus is going to do. Only Jesus can do the work that needs to be done. Only Jesus can drink the cup of God's wrath against sin. Jesus must suffer and die alone. So much religion in this world is nothing more than a human attempt to save ourselves. But we can't. So much religion is an attempt to prove our strength. But we are not strong. Jesus is the one who is strong enough to face the cross. He is the faithful one. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the rock we can build our life on. And until you and I bow to that reality, until we give up our delusions about what we can achieve, until we admit our own weakness and guilt and helplessness, until we say, Jesus is the I am and I am not. Until we get to that point, we will end up denying Jesus. As we keep trusting in our own effort. Our own accomplishments. Our own goodness, our own strength, our own wisdom. Salvation comes when we see the significance of the cross. The significance of the fact that Jesus died despised and alone. It had to be that way. Because no one else could do what he did. No other sacrifice could achieve what Jesus' sacrifice achieved. My little sacrifices, your little sacrifices, they don't pay for any sin. And so long as we keep believing they do, or they might, we are denying the truth about Jesus' sacrifice. This isn't the end of the road for Peter. On the other side of the cross, Peter will follow Jesus. He will sacrifice himself to spread the good news about Jesus. Peter will become a faithful servant of Jesus. But first, Peter had to learn the reality of his own weakness. 
He had to come and trust in the work of Jesus Christ. Peter had to learn he could only follow Jesus because Jesus first went ahead alone and did the work of salvation only Jesus could do. If you are not yet a Christian, I hope you can see that. I hope you can see that true religion is not about proving our worth to God. It's not about proving how good we can be. That's the kind of religion Annas had and Caiaphas. That is the kind of religion that put Jesus on the cross. Because he challenged it. And he showed up its utter emptiness. That was Peter's religion too. He thought he had the strength to do Jesus' work for him. But here in the high priest's courtyard, the emptiness of Peter's religion is shown up. He couldn't do what Jesus did. True religion begins when we give up our attempts to impress God. And we start relying on Jesus, the faithful one. And if you are a Christian, isn't that a great burden off our back? To look at Peter and admit, if Peter couldn't do it, then I certainly can't. My only hope really is Christ alone. And Jesus Christ really is worthy of my hope and trust. He really did undo the sin and disobedience of the Garden of Eden. Through his faithfulness in the Garden, he really has brought about a new creation. In Christ, we really do have strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. In a moment, we're going to share this meal that Jesus gave us. Really, it's a celebration of the truth that he is the Savior and we are not. And to lead us into this, our next song reminds us Jesus suffered and died alone because our salvation could only come through his work alone. Let's join in singing, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene.